Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. This is What Science, where we explore why science is the way that it is, and I'm your host, Amelia Doran. Today's episode is all about the scientific journal article, what is it, how was it made, and why is it important in science today? Our guest is science historian and one of the course leaders of the Science and Health Communication Masters here at the University of Manchester. Harriet leads our Communicating Ideas module, and it was our discussion of the context surrounding journal articles which inspired this episode and made her the perfect guest for today's episode. Here's the wonderful Harriet. Hi Harriet, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, it's a pleasure. So you yourself are a science historian, is that how you describe yourself? I would say historian of medicine originally, but a bit lapsed now more of a science communication slash historian of science communication slash historian of medicine okay many many hats yeah yes we love it so you it's fair to say you've published a number of journal articles in your time it would be generous to say a number but i have published some general well, articles yeah. some number between zero <laughs> some and... number yes yes <laughs> um so do you do you agree with the stereotype that they are just like the worst part of academia do you know what i really don't i think there are much worse parts of academia i won't probably won't go into them too much lest this get out um no I don't think they're the worst part at all I think there are elements of the process that become onerous but essentially what you're doing when you're publishing a journal article is you're showing off a nice bit of research you've done so in some ways it's a kind of culmination of a piece of research which is always nice to let something go I mean you know how it feels when you submit an essay and you can finally kind of get rid of it. So most of the time these represent something you've been working on for months, if not years, and you can finally kind of get it out there um, and let other people kind of see it. The process can be taxing and, as I say, onerous. The process, the very long periods of waiting for peer reviews to come back, for instance, is very annoying um, and can be quite detrimental in terms of your career sometimes. Um, and the process of then revising in light of peer review, especially if that peer review is not particularly helpful, that can be annoying. Um, but generally, generally, I wouldn't say it's the worst part of academia at all. I can tell you some stories about the bad bits of academia. <laughs> Maybe we we'll do that when the podcast another stops. Episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So the journal article is kind of. Would you say it's the the unit of science? I think that's how I see it in my head. As sort of like that is how science comes out into the world would you agree yeah I would I think this is how now it's how scientists kind of talk to each other a lot of the time on a global scale certainly um it's again it's that putting out into the world of your research it's getting it out of your lab or your department um and it's inviting kind of uh, discussion and seeing what other people can t- do with it and where other people can take it. So, yeah, and I think for science, it's it's particularly important. For other disciplines, the journal article represents something a little bit different. But for science, I would agree. So this might be a little bit tricky, but could you describe what a journal article is to someone who'd never seen one before? Ooh, can I? Um, I could certainly try. I think... There's a couple of ways to to think about it. The first is the sort of concept of of what it is. Um, And I don't want to go too far into the history of journal articles. If you look at how the journal kind of developed and how the article developed, it really came about out of a scientific community that was writing each other a lot of letters. 
Um, and it's sort of referred to as the 16th century, the invisible college. You know, all of these letters are being sent across Europe, across the globe, between scientists who are doing different things. And then at some point that just becomes untenable. And at some point you need something more public. So in the 17th century, we start to see journals uh, as we would kind of recognise them now. Sort of collections of these letters, essentially, that were informing other scientists what uh, was going on in various places, that were claiming a new for, a new form or a new topic of research, that were showing um, the results of some new research so that others could build on it, um, and that was kind of putting work out there for others to comment on, take forward, but also to serve as a kind of register, an archive, almost, of what science was doing. And it's still kind of doing all of those things now, science journal articles. They're still a form of saying, look, this is my research group. This is what we're doing. This is how we hope it will be important. This is what our results are. Maybe it speaks to you and you can take it further. Um, It's also, you know, a process of getting feedback on your work. Peer review is a really important part, sending it out beyond your normal networks, things like that. So the journal article kind of represents all of these different things in terms of its kind of wider conceptual identity. In terms of what it looks like um, for science, so my expertise is largely towards the kind of humanities and social science end of things. But science article looks very often like here's an introduction to a problem that we have that we want to investigate. Here's a methodology that we're going to use. Here are some things that we found. Here is some analysis and here is some broader discussion of what that's going to be. So I don't know whether that answers your question. So I've gone from like 1660s all the way up to I you love know, it. I what think it this is like. the thing that I'm struggling with with our course is that everything is so fascinating to me that I kind of forget to do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm there like, ooh, I want to research about every single like iteration of journal articles since the beginning. Um, and then I'm like, that is that is not the point of the coursework, Amelia. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, you've talked a bit about how they might differ from like a humanities article. I think that was definitely my experience when I started this course, coming from like reading biochemistry very academic you know set out in a specific way to sort of even just methods in humanities really confuse me for a minute I'm like that's that doesn't feel correct that doesn't feel scientific but it's not scientific um but yeah so how do you think they differ and what do you think they're like important differences are between maybe a science and a humanity yeah. article yeah and it's it's one of the things that that all of our students kind of find at this point is that you're all coming from such different disciplinary backgrounds um some of you are from science backgrounds obviously some of you from communications backgrounds and so something will be new to everyone so the scientists like yourself have very rarely or never encountered a humanities style article which can at the first look (laughs) look intimidatingly different you know from aside from anything else they tend to be much longer So science articles tend to be more concise. You're kind of trying to do in as few words as possible, as clearly as you possibly can, lay out what you did, what you found, what's the significance of that. Humanities articles are essentially trying to do the same thing. They're trying to say, this is what I've looked at. This is what I found. Here's the significance of that. But they're doing it in a very 
different way. As you say, they often have different methodologies. So we don't go and sit in a lab. We go and sit in an archive or we go and, you know, interview people or we do surveys, things like that. Things that ostensibly look less scientific, um, but that are just as kind of rigorous in terms of methodological um, approach. Uh, So the methods are new. The style of writing is often very different. Science kind of exists in... I always see people, when they talk about these differences, say that science needs to be crystal clear, whereas the humanities is more verbose, which I think is super unfair. <laughs> I think it's really unfair. I think there are technical languages to every discipline. For science, that is a lot of what I would see as technical jargon. Like, I, if I pick up a physics article, I cannot make head nor tail of it, whereas, you know, a physicist would say, oh, this is written very clearly. Um, humanities has its own technical jargon, uh, but it's, it doesn't make it more verbose <laughs> or more kind of flowery or or less clear. It's at, or it should be clear. Like we're always aiming for clarity in any discipline. We're always aiming for clarity because why would you aim to obscure what you're interested in? Um, but they do tend to be longer. They have a different disciplinary language that is confusing if you've never um, encountered that at all. Um, yeah, so those, so that's a sort of that's an immediate difference. It tends to be longer. The style tends to be kind of alien, in however you're approaching it. Um, what else? There also there's a, a difference in structure. Often in science, you have a more kind of codified structure in terms of intro methods, um, analysis, results. Sorry, results analysis discussion tends to be a kind of standard way of structuring a paper for humanities there's less kind of uh, as I say codified ways of doing it for history especially um, papers tend to be structured thematically Um, so it very much depends on the sort of story you're trying to tell in terms of how you want to structure that and it might be uh, chronological um, which is the obvious one for history you want to know how we got from point a to point b Um, or it might be thematic it might be a kind of comparative thing but it very much kind of follows the needs of the topic under discussion. So the structure as well tends to be very different. But I think the thing to keep in mind is that they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all essentially, here's my piece of research, here's what I found, here's why it's significant. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the thing that I struggled with when I was doing my um, like thesis at undergrad and stuff, being able to say, this is why the thing that I've done is so important. I think that's such an interesting part because you're kind of having to say thank you for all the funding and support. Like it all came to something good, which uh, is always fun. Yeah, and it is it is an element that academics struggle with and students struggle with it because you have this thing in your mind that you're new to a topic and you don't want to say this, my work is significant because you don't feel like you've read enough or you don't feel like you've understood enough about the subject because it's, you know, it's week two or whatever. Um, so it's really hard to kind of make a case for your significance. But academics struggle with it as well um, all the time. It's really hard to sort of say, oh, I've spent my entire life looking at the life story of one dude who lived between 1800 and eighteen. 18- 35 and I think this is a really important tiny little case that illuminates something bigger you know sometimes those things feel like a stretch and sometimes those things are difficult to kind of conceptualize in that 
sort of wider significance way. So it's, you know, it's, I don't know whether that's comforting or not, but everyone struggles with that element, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a bit about the kind of units, and I'm definitely used to a traditional science paper where it's introduction, methods, results, uh, discussion, conclusion, and it very set. But the other bit to that is the abstract. And I want to ask this question mostly to try and validate my own undergrad experience, which is that most of the time, I never read the whole article. I would read the abstract and then control F for the quote that I needed or like the particular bit I needed. But yeah, so can you describe an abstract and my maybe what the issues with that type of research might be? There are issues with that and there are not issues with that. It depends on what you're reading for. So sometimes you're going to be reading very, very quickly to get the sense of whether a paper is useful to you or not. Uh, in which case it's perfectly appropriate to read the abstract and then decide off the bat whether or not it's useful. It might be that if you'd given it more time, it would be useful in some way. But in reality, and thinking pragmatically, you don't have the time to do that. You as a student don't have the time to do that. Most academics don't have the time to do that. So the abstract is a tool by which we can gauge the purpose of an article and the main points of an article so we can work out whether it's useful for us to read it. Sometimes it won't tell us the full picture in terms of findings. Sometimes it won't tell us the full picture in terms of methodology. Those are instances where you would want to look a bit closer, where you would want to say skip to those sections or skip to the conclusion is always a good technique if you want to go a bit beyond the abstract or if the abstract isn't clear enough. So it's not that there's something wrong with just using the abstract. In a lot of cases, and certainly in a sort of primary kind of scoping exercise for research projects, that's what you'll be doing, and that's perfectly appropriate, and that's why the abstract exists. Um, where you want to be careful about that <laughs> is when you are kind of writing papers, um, writing essays, or doing your own research projects, where you want to show that you've engaged a little bit deeper with that article. So it's not just about here are the here is the broad overview of that article, what it's about or what it found. It's then more about, you know, oh what did that article do? What did these um authors, scientists, historians, whatever, what did they do? What did they find? How rigorous is it? How persuasive is it? Does it fit with what you're saying or are you, are you challenging it in some way? Those are the those are the times that you'll want to have more of a critical in-depth engagement beyond the abstract so I don't know whether that's let you off the hook or not but <laughs> it's certainly it's certainly not not a problem on its own that kind of approach I think it's interesting as well because I think in my head the reason that I was always like oh I shouldn't be doing this is because I was like well they can write whatever they want in the abstract so they could just say that their results are amazing and then you get down to the bottom and they're not. And I think that was what I was always kind of conscious <laughs> of. And when I was like, I shouldn't be doing this, but I am doing this. But I guess that can't really be true ever. Like they can't just lie in their abstract. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be true. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head where I've come across that. It would, I would be surprised if that sort of thing got through peer review. Um, obviously peer review is not a, a foolproof process but it would be very odd if someone wrote a load of lies in their abstract and that didn't get picked up in peer review so I don't I, I wouldn't avoid that kind of approach because you're naturally a sort of skeptical person <laughs> I don't, scientists writers humanities scholars they're not trying to fool you with the abstract 
Yeah, I I don't know why. I obviously just like too deep into the conspiracy theories that I don't <laughs> trust scientists. But yeah, I think that's interesting. And I guess like what it speaks to is just that the thing you miss from the abstract is the context, right? And it's, they'll tell you this is the headline, but you need to read it to actually get the context. Yeah, you need that wider picture. The abstract is, as you say, the headline. The article is kind of fleshing that out. <laughs> I think, yeah, that would be my... I'm not interested in this article, move on. But I guess that is the useful thing about an abstract, that you can take it and move on. But speaking of context, to move us on, um, one of the big things that maybe surrounds stuff, and again, I think it's something that I'm very sceptical of, is funding and where funding comes off. Because I think there are some horror stories where, you know, science publishers just blatantly skewed the facts because they've been, you know, sponsored by Big Pharma. Maybe that's a inappropriate thing to say but we'll go for it anyway <laughs> um but do you think that's true and, and what do you think about the effects of funding and oh I know less about this as a someone with a humanities background the experience of having funding is somewhat alien to me but um there are I, I get I get where you're coming from I get the point that you know you have to, there's obviously vested interests somewhere and if you're reading a paper about how amazing you know skittles are for you and it's published by the Skittles Corp, then you're going to have very, you know, very relevant <laughs> and very good um, kind of doubts about about that. Um, what I think is useful now is t- is parts of the, the journal will sort of tell you what the funding was, where funding came from. This is especially true in science and social science journals. Um, there's a lot of end material now on articles. So who funded it will be right up there. Conflict of interests will be up there as well, which is a kind of new um, section as well. So even if this research wasn't funded by the Skittles Corp, but you yourself are an heir to the Skittles Corp, that sort of thing, that sort of information will be included in there. And I think now, I I hope I'm not just being naive, I think now um, there are more kind of rigorous sort of reviews and in place to sort of stop that kind of institutional... Uh, meddling with results. Obviously saying that, that's not to discount the idea that certain companies and certain institutions do have a vested interest in, you know, getting certain science published. So they can have um, sway over research um, areas and budgets and things like that. So it's something to certainly keep in mind. The nice thing, as I say, is that journals now want that information. They want you to be upfront about it. So you can at least now (laughs) see where the various interests are without having to do a load of Googling yourself or, you know, archival research or stalking people around the Skittles Corp. Um, Yeah. Saves time, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think it's also interesting the the reason that science articles are as important as they maybe are is because that is seen as quite an objective sort of part of science as opposed to, you know, patents for drugs and stuff that is inherently, you know, being monetized. Whereas publishing these articles more and more are becoming open access. People have access to them and to your methods. Like you could repeat someone's experiment if that was something you needed to do or take their methods to do something else. I think that's like a really important part, just the collaboration that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, again, goes back to, you know, why do we need journal articles in the first place? Why do we need journals? It's, you know, to share research, but also to put a check on research, to make sure that it's rigorous, to make sure that it's good. Yeah, I think it's 
it's nice to kind of be able to see that and I always really like it when you know someone's like we took this method from this paper and added it to this method and you can kind of see the progress within that as well like I always I don't know I find it very wholesome part of like science culture people being like yeah use my methods it's great um like that's always really nice to see yeah and that's you know that's what it should be it should be a sort of science at its most ideal kind of global community coming together to to work together in practice it's often not that but it is as you say it you know it is nice to see that kind of collaboration across journal articles and in acknowledgements as well I was like reading the acknowledgements so you can sort of see where people have taken inspiration see people's intellectual communities kind of well I yeah I always loved seeing the like interdepartmental acknowledgements from my old department you know my lecturer would make us read his article and then he'd be thanking like all our other lecturers and it was always really cute I was like oh Sarah's here or Neil's here or whatever it was um <laughs> yeah it always made me really happy to see um but I guess then we move to maybe the less helpful or the less conceptually helpful part of uh, the community, uh, which is peer reviews and peer reviews and articles. Um, for the listener, Harriet's face has just taken a, a very negative turn. Um, but yeah, so can you tell us a bit more about peer reviews? And I am really interested in like how they came about as well, if you know a little bit about that. Yeah, Um well, I mean, for the listener, my face did that because I just submitted an article, so I'm, it's still a bit fresh and I'm still expecting some peer review. And as soon as you submit an article, you immediately notice everything that's wrong with it. So you immediately start expecting just the worst peer review of your life. Um, but in terms of what peer review is, um, so peer review kind of emerged very early on in the history of journals as i say i'm sorry i'm going to drag us back into, <laughs> into i'm going to drag us back into the 18th century so the 18th century is when kind of early forms of peer review start to emerge and essentially it was always a part of writing journal articles because you want other people to kind of give feedback and things like that but it becomes more kind of codified more of a sort of formal process in the 18th century certainly in the 19th century and then certainly again in the 20th century, it becomes much more kind of codified as journals become more, um, how can I say this, kind of capitalist endeavours. <laughs> um, um, so, I mean, essentially, it's a check. It's a check on your research to make sure that it's uh, well done, that your conclusions make sense, that it's, you know, not incredibly unethical in some way, um, that in, to, in um, relation to science, that it can be repeated that your results can be um, replicated and, and that can be signed off um, it checks against plagiarism you're not stealing someone else's ideas and the other thing it checks is that it, it sort of has a focus on whether the research is important to the field how useful this research is so in that respect um, there's a lot of kind of subjectivity about it and there are different forms of peer review emerging now um, to kind of uh, get not do away with but kind of get past that question of importance so journals like plos one the um, public library of science journal focuses their peer review focuses on whether the methodology is sound just sort of checking the basics so there are different forms of peer review um it depends on your topic your discipline it depends on the journal um in in very kind of pragmatic terms you know you submit an article to a journal a desk editor reads it and decides whether it's good enough to send out for peer review. 
if it's not at that point you'll get desk reject uh, which is touch wood have not experienced yet but now definitely will <laughs> um so thanks amelia <laughs> um, at that point it was sent out to peer review most journals use between uh, two and three peer reviewers um at that point you know you could be waiting for weeks more likely months in some cases over a year um which is is bad practice but and then you know you've given it to people who are in your field who are supposedly experts in what you're kind of an expert in or close to what you're an expert in um and they give it a read and sort of check it for those things like is it rigorous is it persuasive are the methods good are the findings solid um is it important to the field is it going to sort of address a specific research question is it going to help us in some way the peer reviewers will suggest either accept the article accept it with revisions or reject the article at which point the editor will decide um what to say to you (laughs) and you'll get those feedback reports you'll then do whatever the peer reviewers want you to do or won't do that um in some cases And the process can go on again or the process can be finished there and and the article can be either published or rejected. So it's it's an ongoing, (laughs) long, it can be long, this process. Um, But it does serve an important point. Yeah, absolutely. I was interested um, in one of our lecture sessions a couple of weeks back, we were talking about preprints. And um, so those are when journal articles are published before they've gone through peer review and then they kind of are post-publishing peer-reviewed um but I thought that was really interesting you know there was a big rise in it with COVID and all and trying to get as much data out as quickly as possible but some fields are kind of moving towards that more anyway do you think that there's a chance that we'll sort of move away from peer reviews or move like they'll lose their significance maybe I think there's there's definitely a move to sort of change the culture of peer review um as I say you know certain journals are doing different things certain journals are asking their reviewers to concentrate on different things um as you say there's been a rise in sort of preprint phenomena um there's also a rise in kind of different ways of gauging the success of an article like alt metrics and things like that in terms of doing away with peer review I think there's probably a lot of support for it it's it's an unpaid part of an academic job. The journals don't pay academics to do peer reviews. Um, the journals make a lot of money. There is a lot of antagonism and kind of unhappiness with the journal system right now, particularly about how much money they charge um, for access to articles. And, you know, you've mentioned open access. That's a, an increasing kind of, um, there's an increasing move towards open access, not just in the sciences now as well. So I think those cultures are changing and they will need to change the way peer review is done because it's not sustainable. Aside from anything else, you know, taking six months to a year to get reviews back is is not <laughs> a way to sustain an academic field. Um, and academics have increasingly more demands on their time, so less time and less kind of goodwill to do those elements of, you know, free peer review for a journal that's raking in many millions of pounds. I'm probably saying too much here, but <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it would look like, but I think there is a culture change that will occur at some point, or that is occurring now, maybe. 
I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but um, when we were preparing for this, um, so there's a whole thing about the creator of the toaster and it's just been debunked. So someone made a Wikipedia article about um, the so the, the supposed inventor of the toaster, but it was actually just like his friend next to him in a lecture. Um, but this went on for like <laughs> years and this guy, the, like, the actual person, not the inventor of the toaster, the guy was... Uh, nominated to be on one of the five pound notes and all this and as one of you know the great scientific inventors and because he, he has this, I think it's like McAllister or something so it's a quite a Scottish sounding name so you know everyone was like yeah Scottish inventors but then some like 15 year old boy went I'm pretty sure that photo is faked and then that was it and the whole thing collapsed but that that's something you know that very much demonstrates the point of peer review and the fact that someone could have called that a lot earlier if any someone went I'm not sure about this that looks a bit weird and I thought that was just I mean I don't think there'd ever be quite that much in a scientific article but I mean there's instances of scientific uh and and non-scientific journals publishing hoax papers and things like that and these sort of high profile instances obviously I can't remember a single one of them now but there are sort of famous cases peer review isn't flawless it's not a flawless system for various reasons, most of them human factors. Um, but again, I mean, as you say, fact-checking, as a, peer review as an extension of fact-checking is, you know, we need fact-checking now more than ever, arguably, um, in this era of certain billionaires' Twitter feeds and things like that, <laughs> mentioning their names. <laughs> You're just really gunning to get blocked from, like, channels, social media, just everything. I, yeah, in many ways, I hope your podcast fails, Amelia, <laughs> I don't know whether I need this out there, but uh, yeah, but you're you're so right. I mean, it's it's you know fact checking and peer review. They're all sides of the same kind of spectrum of we need checks on the information that is out there. Yeah, and I think you know when we see science as this sort of very like infallible, objective little thing in the corner, like you know that is science and science is the truth. There's so many elements to that that is not correct, but one of them is just you need someone there going, have you done that number correctly? Like, is this calculation correct? Yeah. And that's like the very basic need to do that is so important as well. Yeah. Because, you know, scientists are humans and humans make mistakes. We all do. So it's good to have more than one set of eyes on something checking the information. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that about wraps us up but I think it's been fascinating it's been a great journey fabulous I'm sorry I dragged you all the way back to the 17th century but um I mean I'm here for it every so often I'm like oh maybe I should have done histum instead of science communication and then I think oh well I wouldn't have Elizabeth and Harriet so couldn't be doing that (laughs) but um but yeah I think it is really interesting and maybe we you know with science is an evolving field but also looking at like science as as a thing and the history of that is also very useful as we look at what science is which is the whole point of the podcast so I feel like this fits quite nicely all together you've wrapped that up beautifully what can I say I'm just (laughs) an expert podcaster already (laughs) well thank you for having me it was very nice to kind of ramble on and perhaps get myself in trouble uh, making certain points but you know never mind say lovey Absolutely. And I just I want you to promise us now that at some point when you find out about the journal article, you'll let us know so we can post a little update in case anyone's following. Just be like, she got it passed. Oh well check in check in in three years, we'll see what happens. (laughs) If we're still going, I promise we'll post an update. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you.
Well, what a joy that was. Thank you to Harriet for coming and chatting to me. And let's all keep our fingers crossed for her journal article. Thank you so much to all of you for tuning in. And make sure you come back for next week's episode of Is That Science with Susan. If you haven't already, please do give us a follow over on Instagram and Twitter at That Science Pod with two S's. Keep an eye on our socials for next week's topic and updates from myself and Susan. Until next time.